symbolize that, we lit this candle. This was our Christ candle for the Advent wreath. And part of that declaration is that as, as the Savior has come, that is good news of great joy for all people because death has been defeated through the Savior. He came that we might have everlasting life, eternal life in him. What we're going to do today, we have this sort of newer tradition, and it's, it's a way of following up on that and declaring that that eternal life applies in, in this life. And so we call this the memorial service or memorial remembrance time. And in, the, in 2022, we had five members of East Glenville, five people at East Glenville who have died. And we believe that the light that came into their life through faith in Jesus Christ has not been extinguished. And that they are, they are alive in him even as they wait, await the day of resurrection. And so we're going to do something. As we read these names, we're going to light a candle for each of those people um, from this church who have gone to be with the Lord in his presence. We believe that when we're absent from the body, we are present with the Lord, that, that what we sang about in Revelation song is, is what they're seeing, the crystal sea. That there is a lot in that Revelation passage. And fear not, we are going to dig in, and I want to kind of explain the different elements that are in there and, and show you how it is, it is saying something very important that we want to hear. But I want to start by telling you where we went on Christmas break. After Christmas, we went home to see my folks who live in Canton, Ohio. And if you know one thing about Canton, Ohio, it is the home of the football, pro football Hall of Fame. And uh, so I've driven by this building on the screen all my life because I grew up in Canton. And uh, I'd been in it one other time as a kid, but I didn't really remember it. And so I had the chance, and I thought Ben, my son Ben's starting to get into football, and I thought he would actually enjoy going through there. And it, it, it was fascinating, a lot, of, a lot of stuff in football. And so because I grew up in Canton, I'm, I'm, my first team is the Browns, and, and may it always be so. But now that I am an upstate New Yorker, I have, I've said Buffalo, Bills, I'm in. All right, I know I, I, all the Giants fans I've probably lost right now. But I've always kind of liked Buffalo. I drive through it, you know, on the way from Ohio to here. So, so anyways, the part of the Hall of Fame that caught my attention the most, um, there's definitely some cool stuff. So if you are at all a football fan and you head towards Ohio, it is worth, it's an hour south of Cleveland, it's worth a little extra drive. But um, the part that caught me most was the greatest comebacks in football history. And I took note how many times the Buffalo Bills were in those comebacks. And I want to talk about one of them. In 1992, in the first playoff game in, in the season that the Bills would, they would go to the, the Super Bowl and, and lose, uh, which they were kind of known for. So, so anyways, they, they lost their starting quarterback to an injury, and 
they were playing the Houston Oilers, and they were losing 28 to 3 at halftime. And so you got a backup quarterback, it's not looking good. And then they start the third quarter, quarter and the backup quarterback throws an interception, uh, a pick six. Like the guy runs it in, and now it's 35 to 3. This game is over, right? Their season is over. You know, people are streaming for the exits. And I don't know how many people probably missed one of the greatest comebacks in history because that backup quarterback, Frank Reich, five touchdowns in a row, they end up winning in overtime. Think of how many people missed that, that game thinking the game was over, you know, I, they tuned out. In the big story of Jesus that we're talking about, in pu- the public perception would be that, that the story of Jesus ended with a complete loss, right? Think of what happened to him, what people saw. They saw him crucified. He was shamed by the Romans in public view of the city walls, right? They took him up, they nailed him up on a tree. Um, He was shamed by the Romans. The Jewish leaders, his own people, were mocking him while he's up there. And what about his disciples? They fled. They abandoned him. They ran away. Um, Except for the women who went to the cross. And John, who I, I think John was actually dressed as a woman there. That's, that's my, my own speculation. But because they were afraid that they would be arrested. So, so in, in the public image, that was Jesus, this executed, shamed criminal. And it's important to understand, to, to get what I want to get across, is that the cross was public. The, the resurrection was not. It was Jesus appeared. He did raise from the dead, but he appeared to people personally in small groups or one-on-one. He did not appear to the whole city. He did not appear in such a way that that his enemies and his, the opposition or just the crowds would see him. He appeared to those who at least had a starting point of faith so that the last image that the world would have seen of Jesus was this sign above his head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in three languages. Now, the disciples who had put his faith in him, they had a whole different image. Right? They saw him raised from the dead as he appeared to them, as he, he let them touch his hands and stuff. Like They knew the game had not been over. Right? Everyone else assumed that this was the end of the game Right? because death is the end. You don't get past that. But his disciples knew, no, 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 this game went into overtime. He had come back and he had, he had won an incredible victory and so they, they go, their, their message, they go into the world is, yeah, the one you crucified, he's actually the victorious one. He won it after all. And, but I still, in that image of it, they, they still had that, this is still the last public thing. And that is why I'm convinced, Revelation 1, God gives to the church a, an image of Jesus as, as victorious, 
That is what Revelation 1, it's giving you this view of, no, 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 he really did win. Let me show you. And, and it was, so today's passage is John. It has a vision of Jesus in the heavenly throne room. It is about 60 years after the cross. And John is one who had walked with Jesus. He had seen, the, he might have been that one. He was that one who was there and saw this. And so now he is the one who gets to see Jesus and, and his exalted, glorious state and to bring that to the church because those who would have seen Jesus resurrected are now fading from the scene. Revelation was written about 90 AD, maybe up to 95 AD. So it's kind of like, you know, you think of the World War II generation, they're almost nearly all gone. This now almost all of the resurrection generation would be fading from the scene. And so God gives to the church, let me show you, he really did win. Um, so it starts off, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And so note, it's, it's John. Now, there is, it, there is a dispute. Is this John the apostle that's writing this, or is it some other John? And it is not definitively stated in Revelation that it's John the Apostle. I think it was. I, I see a lot of commonality in John, the gospel, the, the gospel of John's writings and this. And so I, I sort of hold that it is the same, but that's disputed, just so you know that. Um, it's not essential to the message of Revelation that it has to be John the Apostle. Um, but I think it does highlight things if it is. So John, we know he's in exile. He's an old, old man at this point, and he, he is given the chance to see Jesus in the heavenly throne room. He writes this letter, or the whole book of Revelation, to seven specific churches. So I put the map on the screen. There's a few things that are significant about this. One is it says it's in Asia, which is what we would call Asia Minor. It was a Roman province called Asia Minor. Um, it's not Asia as we think of today, like China or anything like that. So it's, it's, but that's significant. It shows that the church has spread from outside, like almost all the action of the Bible takes place in Jerusalem and Israel. It has shown the message of Jesus has now taken root in other places. And only one of the cities here is, is, a, is a key player in the, the New Testament letters, Ephesus. You know, you know, there's a letter to the Ephesians. The rest are these other cities where the church also has taken root and gone. Now, why seven? Well, it, one, I think it's probably the churches John was working with, but a, a more full answer is seven is the number of completeness in Hebrew thinking. So that these seven represent the church as a whole. So they pick seven to say the, it's writing to the whole church, not just, you know, not just any, any uh, specific churches. Um, so that, that's who it's uh, by, who's writing it, but who's it ultimately from? That you get in the next verse. It says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And so what, what we're going to see in this, this couple verses, four, end of four and end of five, is that it, it's from God. This is God initiated. God wants the church to know something to see a different image of Jesus. And it's addressed from God, but God in three parts or three persons. 
Now, we know that that's the Trinity. It doesn't use the word Trinity, but it shows the Trinity. And you'll, I'll show you in a second of the three different parts that each one of them are, are of God. What's fascinating to me is that uh, it, it, it uses a different formulation. So if you go to the Gospels, Matthew 28, who are the three members of the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's see who shows up here. So it's from the one who is and was and who is to come. That's another way of talking about the Father, right? The God Almighty who stands outside of time, who, who always was, who is now, who, who God is, God exists, God is, God's the ever-present, and who is to come, who will always be there. So that's, that's it's the Father, um, God Almighty. And then it says the seven spirits who are before the throne. Like, whoa, seven spirits? That there's only one spirit. So let me explain this one. It really could be better, I think it would be better said sevenfold spirit. It is talking about the one Holy Spirit. The number seven here is representing that this one Holy Spirit is everywhere all at once. And so each of the seven churches has that same Holy Spirit. I think that's one of the reasons why it talks about the, seven, the sevenfold Spirit. It's connected to each of the seven churches. The Spirit exists where God's people are because he, he lives within his people. There's another reason why I think it talks about the seven in regards to the Spirit is Isaiah 11.2. It talks about the seven characteristics of the one Spirit. So Isaiah 11 says, And the Spirit of the Lord, that's one, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, it's two and three. The Spirit of counsel and might, four and five. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So that's seven characteristics. It's the seven says the completeness of this one Holy Spirit. So we have the Father, we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and then the last one is it just tells you it's Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. And, and it's going to go on and talk more about Jesus because that is really the, the goal is to, to, to re-communicate Jesus, to see what he's like now. So going into the next thing, it talks about, so what do we know about Jesus? Um, the first thing it wants to convey is Jesus is not a victim of Rome. Jesus is victorious in every way. Right? It says, it says every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Right? To those who are a part of, of killing him, like now they're going to see that, that, that it didn't last. He, he is alive. And there are um, this great vision. He's, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. He has made us into a kingdom. One day everyone will see it, even, even those who, who played a part in his death. All peoples will come to see. And that, that is how the world still sees him. As, as in the eyes, they see it as, uh, 
as a victim. But we who follow Jesus know that he is alive. He is not a victim. He is the victorious over all powers. And that it actually was his death by which he gained the victory. Talks about how he has freed us from our sins by his blood. That seemed like a foolish way to try to bring your kingdom, to allow yourself to be killed. But we now know that it was his blood that set us free from the power of sin and guilt so that we could have eternal life with him. That's what it was about. And so it goes on in verses 9 to 11 to talk about how how John says, uh, write what you see. So it gives John this picture of Jesus, says, write what you see, and send it to the seven churches. This is something the church needs to see. The people need to see. We need to know and understand this. So write it down, send it out to the churches. Um, John himself is, it says he's in exile in the island of Patmos. The church is facing persecution. They're, they're to, 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 to live out your faith in Jesus and hold on to faith in the midst of the Roman Empire that is going to try to to turn you away from that true worship, it is going to be a challenge. You need to know that you've signed on to the winning side. That by saying yes to Jesus, you are not, it's not not a fool's bet. Jumping down to verse 12. So here's where we get to the vision proper. It says that John, because yeah, all up to that point was just the, who's addressing, who's speaking. And it says, John, he hears a voice of the one speaking, the one that says, write this down. So only in verse 12 that says, then he turns to see who's speaking. And it's then he sees. And the first thing it says he sees is the golden lampstands. And it'll explain the seven golden lampstands, what they're about. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That is a key phrase. That phrasing is no accident. Back in November, when I was going through the Old Testament, I I took one time and I looked at the the prophecy in Daniel, the vision of Daniel. And if you get a chance, if you miss that Sunday, it's somewhere we we have, you can access all my incredible sermons on, on our website or on Facebook. If you go to Facebook and it says videos. You might not see. You got to go to where it says live because we, we do all our, our things live. Go back in somewhere like the end of November. And in that time, look for the one that says Daniel 7. Because 600 years before Jesus, the, the prophet Daniel had a vision of four beasts. And these beasts represented the, the, the empires, the world empires that would, would take place over those 600 years. And that all four of those beasts are defeated and power instead is given to one like a son of man. The same exact phrasing that's used here. So this is tapping in to that vision from Daniel. And what it's saying is that all power and glory has been given to this this one like a son of man, Jesus, right? He is now the ruler of all, the ruler of all the kings of the earth. And that those other powers that seem so strong are not the one in charge. It is the one who walked in Galilee, the one who healed the leper, the one who gave his life for our salvation. He's the one who's in charge. Um, And so it goes on to say, 
Well, so it says he's walking amidst the lampstands. One of our, in our uh, statement of faith in the Apostles' Creed, it says, right, we, we believe he was seated at the right hand of the Father. So which is it? Is he seated or is he standing amidst the lampstands? So I, I was thinking about my wedding. I remember at our wedding, and maybe this is true for a lot of us, that, that you are seated at the head table, right? Like when you, you know, you go there, you have, you have official seats for the bride and the groom. So you have your official seats and maybe at some point you sit in them and actually eat a little bit. But I, I, all I remember from that reception is we were walking around talking to people the whole time. So Jesus has been seated in the sense that he has been given the throne. He, he is the one set as the ruler, but he is at work bringing his kingdom to earth. He's not just sitting down relaxing. He is, is doing something, and he is attending to these golden lampstands. And it tells us very clearly that these gold lampstands represent the seven church congregations that are, have already been referenced, which again represents all churches, all church congregations. Um, and so, so Jesus is active, and he's at work amidst his followers who are gathered into churches. And through them, he is extending his kingdom. He, he's the one at work to bring his kingdom throughout the world. So these, these lampstands bear his light, and the light enables more and more people to come to know the truth. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And that's what we see going into the, these passages. Um, so in the midst of the lampstands, he's standing there. They're, okay, so there are three things we see about Jesus that highlights his power and glory. So two things point to the wisdom of Jesus in this description. One is his white hair. That conveys the sense of, of age and maturity. Now, I know in our day and age, we're a youth culture, right? But if you live, in the ancient times, if you lived old enough to have white hair, that was kind of impressive, you know, because pe people died young. So white hair was considered a sign of, of wisdom. Um, and then it says his eyes are like blazing fire. He sees through the falsehoods. He sees past the deceptions and falseness of people. He sees into their hearts. So two things that show his wisdom. Two things that show the strength of Jesus. One, it talks about his feet are like glowing metal, glowing, glowing copper, strong and solid. He cannot be moved. In, in ancient battles, oftentimes the, the goal was, it wasn't about like, you know, how well you can swing your sword. It's how could you push the enemy back. Right, and it was about so having solid feet meant you were immovable. That was a, a an aspect of ancient warfare. The other thing that shows his strength is his voice. His voice is like the sound of 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 a waterfall, many rushing waters. Imagine standing by Niagara Falls, right? You you can't hear anything. That's all you hear is the waterfalls. That is his voice, the the strength that he conveys in in his word. And then there are two things that point to the glory of Jesus. One is it talks about the sword and the stars. I'm going to hold that and come back to that in a minute. But that, that's about his glory. The second thing it says is face is like the full shining of the sun. There, there's no lack of glory in Jesus. This is not a victim. This is the one who's victorious and exalted above all. When John sees it, 
It says he's overwhelmed by it all. It's, it's uh, Jesus immediately says, fear not. And he, here's where I think, I think Jesus is saying, John, don't, don't be afraid. It's me, right? I know, you know, I look a little different, but I'm the same one whom, whom you rested your head on at the Last Supper. It's me. I'm, I'm, I'm Jesus. So I'm going to nerd out for a minute. I, I did the sports one, right? So this is for the, the, the 10 of you who uh, have read The Lord of the Rings. And, uh, it, and the, spoiler alert for those who, you know, anyways. Uh, so in the beginning of the, the Lord of the Rings series, the hobbits encounter a guy named Strider. He's a ranger from the north, and he's a scruffy looking guy. You can see him like he's sitting in a corner. They're very suspicious of him. They think he's going to try to steal their, their ring. That, that's the big deal. And, and so they, they're not sure they could trust him, and he doesn't, doesn't look much. It ends up Strider goes with them in their journey, and through the, all the rest of the book, Strider is with the hobbits and, and supports them, you know, is with them in their journey. And only at the end, do they find out that Strider is actually the high king. He's the rightful king, and he's exalted. So at the end of the book, they see him crowned as king of Gondor. Isn't that a little like Jesus? I think Tolkien had, was a Christian. He was giving Christian imagery. Jesus, this one who, as he walked on earth, he just didn't, you know, didn't have that, that glory with him. But he walked with the disciples, and now... Now they're seeing him crowned, exalted um, in his full glory. And here's where Jesus speaks. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last. I was there at the beginning, I will be there at the end. A lot of this stuff makes me think of John 1, right? What, what does John 1 start with? Maybe you heard it at Christmas time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, right? So, so Jesus is the first and the last. He's there at the beginning. He, he goes on to say, um, I am the living one. Not a living one, by the way. The living one. John 1 talked about he is the life, or he's the light, and in him was the life of man. Right? He is the source of life. He is the living one. And then it says, I died. <laughs> and behold, I'm alive again. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I really died. That was, that's true. They put me in a tomb. I was there, and yet I'm alive again, and now I'm alive forevermore. He has conquered death. He cannot be killed again. And moreover, it says, I have the keys of death and Hades, meaning he's the one who is the, the source of, of getting beyond the grave. We are all prone to death in this life, but in Christ, we are, we are in him beyond death. So John... Back to John, John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, Jesus holds the key to death and Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. And instead of going to Hades, the place of the dead, if we know Jesus, we, we ascend to be with him. Absent from the body. Our, our inner being, our soul, will be present with the Lord at the end, at, and when our end comes. And Jesus, in John 11, he says, do you believe this? 
Can you believe this? Can you believe that a guy executed as a criminal by the Romans is actually the Lord of the universe? That he is the one through whom all power has been given. That he is the one who determines the eternal destiny of all people. That he is the one that we can turn to. That's the question, right? Can, can you believe this? In verse 19, Jesus says, write these things down. Write, therefore, what you've seen. People need to hear this. Write the things you see now. Write those that are yet to take place. I'll, I'll, I'm going to show you even more. And then in verse 20, it says, as for the mystery of the seven stars. Let me explain that to you. Right? You saw seven stars in my right hand. And you saw me walking amongst seven golden lampstands. So it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the lampstands are the seven churches. So does that mean every church has an angel that watches over it? Dude, I hope so. I hope we have a really strong one here watching over us, making sure we don't get, get thrown. But I'm not sure what that, 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 that's what it's saying. So first of all, it's saying, He's saying, I'm alive, I have a plan, and my plan is to work through these, these followers who I gather in together, right? This is what we're doing, right? We, he gathers people together, those who put their trust in him, and through them, he bears his light all around to the people in their city that more and more would have the chance to hear the good news, the good news of salvation. So he gathers us, and then and then he empowers us. So what's in his right hand? Um, well, it says in his right hand are seven stars. And what's coming out of his mouth? A double-edged sword. Is that right? I mean, it shouldn't be the other way. Wouldn't it make more sense if the sword's in his hand and the stars are coming out of his mouth like a Pokemon or something, a Pikachu or, you know, like, I could picture that. A, I've had people try to draw the sword out of his mouth, and it is just the weirdest thing to try to, to, to see. I, it, it's disturbing. But it's conveying something important. It's saying, how will he bring his kingdom to earth? By what power will he use? Will he, if it, the sword was in his hand, it would say he would gather armies and give them swords, and he would use military power to overthrow the kingdoms of this world and bring his kingdom to earth. That is not his plan. To, to give you a contrast, what's in Zeus's right hand? The lightning bolt, right? That's how he exercises his power. This, the sword coming in mouth is saying, how will he bring his kingdom to earth? Through his word. The message of Jesus that goes forth and changes people's lives. When you find out that the, the God of heaven is a good father who loves you, and even as we've strayed from him, and even as we've sinned and messed up our lives, he is there and wants to forgive us and give us new life and a new start. That that father wants to be in our life. That's a powerful, transforming message. That is the power of the kingdom going forth. And, and that power needs to be shown, and it, it's shown through his people gathered into lampstands. And so what about then the, the seven stars? Well, it says these are angels. So I, I want to make an argument. I think the, there's the, the word angeloi, 
which is the, the word in Greek, can mean angels. And it often is translated angels. But it also has another meaning. And so on the screen, I don't know if you guys can see this at all. Probably not. So the word angeloi is the Greek word. And I have it circled. Underneath it, this is, this is what you get if you have like a, a, a Greek Bible and it puts the English word underneath. It says messengers. So the Greek word angeloi means the, the angel is the, the message. The angeloi are the messengers. And so what I think it's saying is saying, what's he going to do? He's going to give churches a messenger to, to convey his word so that they're being transformed by that word and growing to reflect the glory of Christ in their life. Now, I could believe that just because I want to think of myself as a star in the right hand of Jesus, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't want to make too much of that, but, but I, that seems to be the strategy that he's using. And what it means is that Jesus is at work amidst the lampstands, tending them, adding oil, which is the Holy Spirit, and sending out his light through them, bearing his word by them to the world around, and that we are then witness bearers for the victorious Christ. We've been given the charge to convince a world who sees Jesus as a loser, and, to con- and we can't convince anyone, but we can bear witness to the fact that, no, he is the victorious one. He's the Lord of all. Let me tell you how he changed my life, right? And we bear that message not when things are easy, right? Think about this. Jesus won the victory by dying. In the same way, we bear the message of Jesus as victor amidst struggle and strife. This is why the Lord just doesn't take all our problems away and make sure that none of us deals with illnesses, right? In a dark world, we hold up candles and say Jesus is the light. In a world full of hardship, we keep insisting that our God is a good father who loves his children. In a, in a world of enmity and rage, we strive to practice forgiveness and grace. When people are hungry and in need, we share what we have because we know that God provides for us. When illness and suffering comes, we pray and we trust in our God and we pray for others as their needs. And when death comes, we set our sights on the Savior and we rejoice in the eternal life that we have. That's how we bear witness to the victorious Christ. And we're doing it, even as we speak. I, I want to flash to one, one more verse further ahead, one more passage further ahead. And it's Revelation 7, 9, and 10. And sometimes this is viewed as what will take place you know, later at the end of time. I think this is what's going on every, every day, especially every Sunday. And it talks about the, the people who've come to put their faith in Jesus. It says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes. So this is talking about people, clothed in white robes means it's people who've been justified, made righteous, Um, by Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit in our life. And it says they're waving palm branches in their hands. Palm branches are a signal of victory. It's what you waved when a victorious general came into your city. So it's it's a group of people gathered who've been made righteous and are, are, are waving palm branches of victory. And they're crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, who are praising God the Father and the Lamb, praising the Lamb, Jesus Christ the Son. We bear the message. Here and now we're doing it. We do it each week. And each day as we follow Jesus out in a hurting and broken world, even in the midst of, of struggle and, and, and sorrow, we keep saying, Jesus is alive and he can change your life. Backing up one verse, to, uh, back to verse nine. Um, this is the part we kind of skipped over. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So I want to say the four things that John talks about in this, and they're underlined. And I want to ask you to think about each one of these. It says, I, John, your brother, are you living as part of the family of believers? Or are you trying to live your life as a solo Christian? Right? It says that we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ because we, we together follow him. Are you living that way or have you kind of said, no, oh, you know, I just need me and Jesus, me and my Bible, and I'm good. Or are you living with other believers in that kind of relationship? The second thing it says, your partner in tribulation, or that word also just means hardship. Are you ready to follow Jesus no matter what? Or are you only going to follow him if he gives you what you want? Are you ready to follow Jesus no matter what? The third thing in that is partner in the kingdom work, right? Are you committed to serving and seeing his kingdom grow and expand? Have you found, see, God gives you gifts, gives us all gifts by which we can make a difference within his kingdom. Are you finding the way God has gifted you specifically to add and make a contribution to the work of the kingdom? And then the fourth thing um, partner in patient endurance. Do you spend your time whining and complaining or are you patiently enduring and joyfully worshiping the Savior? Let's praise him.